0: Zane Low, Apple Music.
1: I'm not much of a reader, you know, it's not (laughs) the And It's a strange thing to admit, especially in a podcast space where everybody is really smart. But I'm a listener. I like listening to music. I'll listen to podcasts. I'll listen to my friends. But reading is not something I've ever necessarily had the patience to do in great amounts. You know, if I sit down with a book and I try to really focus on it for a long period of time, I get restless. I start thinking about what I could be doing with my ears, with my hands. So it's just not something I've ever really applied myself to. I say that to say I got sent a book, a brand new copy of Brandy Carlisle's brilliant autobiography which is called Broken Horses and I, I wanted to read her at least get my head around the story because we had this conversation that was coming up and, and I wanted to know more about her than just through the songs. Started reading it like two and a half days, done gone like it was like a hamburger at the end of a long night. I literally just looked at it and it was gone it was red. It's such an incredibly compelling read beyond whether or not you know, you're know you fascinated by her or you even really know her music. Her story is incredible and uh, what a unique life. Which brings us to this conversation which focuses on her brand new album In These Silent Days, which is start to finish stunning and uh, really is a reflection of the times that we live in but done in a way that's so Brandy Carlisle, the writing, the imagery, the metaphors, they're all so beautiful and, and visual that often you don't realize that you're actually absorbing and learning things from her perspective. Until a few listens in and you start picking up the nuances of the language. She's one of the best doing it. And an incredibly nice human being who invited myself and my friends out to her property. We hung out in this beautiful clearing in the middle of this forest surrounded by trees that seemed to go up to the heavens. And it was a beautiful evening. She made a fire. We sat around it and we just talked about life. And if that doesn't draw you in, then psh, I'm done. Enjoy this conversation with Brandy Carlisle right here on the interview series. I mean, the only way I can possibly try to describe this place right now is just by simply saying congratulations. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Thanks. Can I get a lighter from you guys? Oh, thanks, bud.
1: It's just so beautiful and peaceful. And how did you know this was the one? I mean, before you even got down here and carved a trail down here, when you landed on the first stop on this magical mystery tour of extended family and places to call home. How did you know this land was the right place?
2: Well, you know, it's crazy. It's like, you know how I grew up because you you read the book, Mm -hmm. but I always wanted a um, log cabin in the woods just outside of Seattle in in the Cascade Mountains. And I was pretty, I wasn't too picky about like, you know, where it should be or what it should be like. But there was this place that I used to go to and like sort of party, and I don't mean like party, but just sort of have bonfires and play my guitar and sing and have my friends out and like on a creek. And I started going to this place when I was like 16, 15, 16, all the way up until I think I even had like my 21st birthday there. And it's like right there. Wow. It's just like right through those woods. And then I sort of grew up and I was with my my girlfriend and talking about, you know, wanting to move out to the country and live in this log cabin and have this idyllic thing that I had been thinking about mm. for all these years. And we found this one, wound up just coming out here and I saw it for the first time and I was like, oh, this is it, this is the place, you know? And then I realized that it was like just through the woods, just a little ways, was like that place that I had always sort of sat with my guitar in. And-
1: you know, what's interesting is that I think most people who travel or perform or, or who live in this frequency eventually search for something like this, but it's after wandering for a long time. Yeah. They, they've realized that they want some peace and quiet after enough applause and enough travel and enough speed. Whereas you settled here, you know, and correct me if I'm sort of making this too simple, but before your real wandering had even kind of started, like your career hadn't even, whatever you want to call it, hadn't even really kicked off. And you'd already found this place that you would come back to, which is unusual in the best way.
2: Yeah, it was unusual. And I had just started traveling the country with the twins in our van. And um, it was crazy. I was going from city to city to city to city. and loving it, just loving meeting all the different kinds of people and trying the different kinds of food. And, you know, I didn't get on an airplane until I was like the first time I ever took a plane anywhere. I must have been 17, 18 years old. I think I went to Boise, Idaho. or Something like that. And, you know, so I was experiencing the country in the way that I'd sort of always wanted to. And then um, coming home to this place and realizing, okay, there is something to be said for having a place, you know? moved so many times as a kid and then just made this decision like in my early 20s, like, oh, yeah, no, this is it. I'm, I'm going to get buried here. <laughs> you
1: know, what's funny though is that, you know, you, you end up finding a place like this and then you look forward to coming back. Yeah. You know, you leave, you come back, you leave, you come back, and you get to build this rhythm. In the last year and a half, there's been no leaving. So how did it change for you, knowing that you, you had nothing to look forward to come home to every day?
2: You're so right, it it really did, uh, it changed a lot of things for me. I realized how much affirmation I get from strangers, other people, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: how dependent I've been on it since I was like eight years old. That sort of like, life-affirming response that you get from an audience when you perform, which is also an outlet. I mean, if everybody could just have a job where they sort of scream and stomp all the time, I think they would probably find themselves a little more well-rounded.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because you're right. There's that expression which gives you the opportunity to release something, but then what you receive in return yeah. isn't actually that natural a place to resolve things within yourself because it's a false economy.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's that th- this lyric that um, when I had my Saturn return, when I turned 30, I freaked out and this lyric was in my mind all the time it was an indigo girls lyric from one of my favorite albums of theirs and it said um Oh, the fear I've known, that I might reap the praise of strangers and end up on my own.
1: <laughs> that is amazing. I've never <laughs> heard that before. That's a far more beautiful and poetic way of saying exactly that.
2: Yeah, I don't know. False economy is a pretty poetic way of saying it too. <laughs> yes, though, it's, it's, true. A, it's
1: a thriving economy nonetheless. <laughs> you know, But it's just funny, isn't it? Because you do find yourself on the receiving end of this adoration and you, and you strive for it and you work for it. And it's part of your ambition and what drives you and it's pure in its essence. But then when it's stripped away from you, and you're left with stillness, I always think that, and I've spoken to so many amazing artists, I spoke to you and we had a great conversation last year, and what I learned from that time was Mm -hmm. that stillness was tough on the restless artistic spirit.
2: Yeah, yeah, it really was. It was tough on it, and you had to kind of put intention into anything that you did, you know, like, I couldn't perform, so, you know, I built a deck, or worked on the trails out here or um, consulted with other artists on strategizing around their careers and their and their plans. I wrote songs. I wrote a book. Yeah. Um, but I needed that same amount of output just needed to happen. I don't know what would have happened if I had sort of damned it up for whatever reason.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but I had this place and I had my family. And um, by my family, I mean like my friends I play music with. Yeah. yeah.
1: And their families. Yeah. And this amazing... As you, as you beautifully put it before, this chosen family. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it chose you. And this is the thing that's so fascinating about reading your book and, and really, I guess, beginning this conversation in earnest at the final chapter, which is really where the, the, the future starts to unveil itself, both bold and scary, bright, beautiful and, and challenging, is you have your life is so connected to time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, hang on, timing. <laughs> You and timing is a crazy thing.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. That has hit me today for various reasons too. You're right, it totally is. It's, it's, I think everything that's happened to me that's worked in my life is down to it. And it hasn't been when I wanted it to happen. It's yeah. been when, to, when it was meant to happen. Yeah. yeah.
1: Those moments of manifestation that seem to occur, something as simple as David showing up when you find out that you know, you're know you pregnant again for the second time. Yeah, that was weird. Part of it. so weird, but there's a lot of weirdness <laughs> like that. Do you, how do you share that? How do you explain it to your kids when they're old enough to understand? Do you call it faith? Do you call it manifestation of human energy and the willing and, the, and, the, and willing something beautiful to happen? Is it a bit of both? Like, or do you prefer to keep it unexplained?
2: I mean, I call it faith. You know, mm. That's the way that I sort of navigate mysticism. But there are so many moments of synchronicity like that that I like to point out to them. Like, I think that's a sign. I think that's a sign that the mystical is here. Yeah. I think that's a sign. I think the veil's being lifted here. Yeah. You know, and I try to point it out to them to just to remind them that the dimension that we understand is is uh, is so much more narrow than the one that surrounds us. And that every once in a while, we get these little shards of light, these little glimmers of of the mystical, of the beyond, of the cosmos. And you know, there's no shame, especially now that I'm 40 years old, and I'm not afraid of looking like a you know a woo old lesbian, there's really no shame in just being like, I think that might be mysticism. Say
1: it, speak it, yeah. shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> I fully believe it. I love it. I don't know how it happens. It's definitely, I benefited from it. I've witnessed yeah. it myself, and it's a really beautiful thing to experience. Yeah. Even the tough ones, you realize looking back on them. They...
2: Oh, yeah. And it's the tiny things. It's not the big things, you know. It's just these little things that happen in, the day, in your day, the details.
1: But you're dialed in, though. Like, there's something... Do you believe in guardian angels? Do you believe in- in, I do, like yeah, big time, Yeah,
2: I do. In fact, I joke about it because everything's dark humor to me or whatever, but like, God, it's like when you have little kids and you probably, you have boys, so Mm -hmm. you're gonna have experienced this a hundred times more than I have. It's like when you have little kids and and the goes down and they go to, you know, they go running out of their bedrooms and they come this close to like, knocking a butcher knife off the counter and landing on it or hitting their head on something sharp. And you know it was about to be an emergency room trip. I always just go, baby angels. There's just something around, like, little kids. They're always just, like, one very small step away from, like, total catastrophe. And I sometimes do sense a guardianship, you know. But then sometimes it's not there, and and, and bad stuff does happen. But I, I think the baby angels thing has, has made itself pretty clear to me. I stopped baby-proofing with the second one. You did? Yeah. I was like, well, the angels are going to keep her away from the fire
1: you know you've you've got light in your eyes right now and and real it's it's a very peaceful being here and you seem very happy and we're going to talk about this beautiful album that's helped you get there but i guess it wasn't always like that for the last year and a half because there's also a lot of really deep self-realization going on on this record some really honest conversations with yourself
2: Mm -hmm. anybody that has the time or the tenacity or or any sort of a hankering for self-exploration at all that could sit down and sort of write their story like to kind of chronologically you sort of view your life from beginning to end, starting from an early event and trying to smell things and taste things and, and remember fragments of, of, the, of your experience. And like, it's kind of a mining of yourself that you do. I try not to self-indulge, you know, to the point of ridiculousness, but writing that book gave me this really linear understanding of like, oh, here's how I, I started and here's how I am. And these are the things in between that made it so. And it was such clarity it was fodder for days for a new album, but I've always kind of written these songs where, we're talking about this today, you know, um, nuance or regret in real time versus seeing it in retrospect, where I would write songs and finish these songs, record these songs and be playing them on the road before I'd realize what I'd written the song about. Mm. And it was so clear as soon as I saw into this sort of snow globe, I realized, oh, well, yeah, of course. But this was the first time, I think, because I'd written the book that I was—I knew what I was writing the songs about while I was writing them, and so I had so much more to pull from, so much more sensory material, than this kind of abstract,
1: half-truth. Well, I think you set that up in the, in the final chapter. It's really amazing how the cadence of the book starts to settle at a time when you should be just running around the world, just all this, all everything you worked for and chased down in your life was happening quickly. Yeah. Like the sort of chapters 18, 19, and 20 are full on. Yeah. You know, everything before that was just a really full, brilliant, personal life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. With music as a, as, a, as a through line. But I never felt like I was, and this is a compliment, I never felt like I was reading a music bio mm-hmm. at good. all. Felt I didn't want you to. I felt to. like you were, you were, yeah. I was reading a, lo- a really fascinating story about someone's life. It ended up with Grammys and Joni and Alton and all these amazing festivals and great things, you know. Mm-hmm. Did it feel like a full life at the time you were living it or did, did it feel different? Totally full. Yeah.
2: I mean, I thought I was a rock star when I was in karaoke contests and busking Pike Place Market. I really did. I mean, I always thought I was like right on the verge of making it. Yeah. And I'd get one opportunity and it'd be like, I've made it. You know what I mean? I just <sighs> always thought I had arrived every step of the way. I've arrived, I've arrived, I've arrived. And, and as it's changed and these arrivals have come to me, it's the same feel. it's really uncanny. It's the same feeling. Which is what? As being 21 and getting a record deal. It's wow. this, these arrivals, these constant arrivals.
1: Which protects you from disappointment to some degree because it's really, if you're living in the moment, like yeah. this is as good as, as, the, as the previous one or the one before that.
2: Yeah, I've I just always been so satisfied <laughs> by it, by it all, you know, and like, only when I reach a milestone did I realize that I hadn't reached the milestone until that point. Like, it was the Grammys. I didn't even know when they were yeah. or how to submit, you know. And the first time I saw that that first nomination, I was just like, I was like, oh, I think this means that, like, I'm, like, hugely famous or something. Like, this is, I have made it. Like, I have a Grammy nomination? What the hell? And... It just felt really good to me the whole time. And I had my sure. brother, the twins with me, yeah. and I had my family, and um, I was like, just building a life for myself and for us. And, and look, it's like, dude, my, my voice and my music has given me everything good that I have, from
1: yeah.
2: my wife to my kids to my faith, you know, to my my boat.
1: I often say that too. I always say music gave me everything. Like (laughs) everyone I've ever met who I love and everything I ever have is because I just fell in love with music. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you a question um, because you mentioned the twins and your wife and this beautiful, wonderful forest of family that you have around you. And I was reading your book and I, and I I thought, I've got to ask her that. Have you ever truly been on your own for a period of time? No. I mean, it was interesting to me that I feel like you've always been in, there's always been love in proximity.
2: Yeah, it's true. i've I have never been um forced to be alone, and I've certainly never made the decision to be alone. And I do feel a little bit, you know, now that there's just kind of a narrative about evolution and sort of self-growth and mm. self-care that everybody seems to be privy to. I do feel inadequate that I um, am not capable of it, or I feel that I'm not capable of it. Yeah, I don't know. But I just know that I don't want to know. Yeah, You know what I mean? And so it's like I have never been alone in love relationships or family or even like I could probably count the nights I've spent here alone on one hand, and I didn't like them. And it was just because all the people I called to come spend the night with me wouldn't come. (laughs) You know, it's not something that I do very well. I may do. I may have to learn it eventually.
1: The touring thing is funny, though, right? That's at times I'd imagine a challenging byproduct of what you love to do. Um, You have your your family with you on the bus, but there must have been times when you were in hotels on your own and spending time on your own. I mean, I struggle with it. I mean, I think anybody does. I hate being in hotels on my own. I can't stand it. It's, it's a, the worst it's place. A box.
2: Those spaces, they're not good. No. Nah. Especially now that we have these phones, you know. Yeah. Because we'll sort of like...
1: Yeah, the vicarious... Go down the, these
2: yeah, rabbit yeah, holes, yeah, dysfunctional yeah, thought yeah, processes yeah, and
1: stuff Yeah, for sure. Like it's yeah. feeding you with this bad shit. What do you do in those moments when you... Even with all your family around you... I guess the question is more, do you have moments when you get lost in your own thought, even though you have family around you, when... You struggle to process things, even with the support and love of others.
2: Absolutely, yeah. There are many moments where I go into my own head and get into really familiar thought patterns for me now, because I'm at an age where I know where they are, what they are now, and they don't um, do as much damage because I kind of know how to stop them, you know. But they'll be in, you know, really thinking I'm I'm alone, or that other people can't handle the things I'm dealing with, or that. You know, people in my life that are really capable are somehow suddenly not capable Mm. and I can't delegate um, things that I'm overwhelmed about to the people that I wish I could lean on and all these things are made up because of course you can lean on them and of course you can delegate and of course everybody wants to to support you, but I can get pretty superior in my thinking about work ethic and workaholism (laughs) and stuff like that.
1: I mean, there's some amazing moments in the book where that superiority has, has tested relationships with some of the most, at least on paper, superior figures in the music business. You know, this <laughs> ongoing relationship with Rick just fascinates me because… With Rick Rubin? Yeah, because he's a friend as well and I love him to bits. And, <laughs> me too. And, but man, you know, Rick is like this guy who sort of sits in, you know, and meditates through life, but then if you get him on the, on, on the subject that really matters, he becomes like East Coast punk rock Rick real fast.
2: Yeah? Yeah, animated and everything.
1: Animated and everything. Yeah, yeah. And like, that and that's f***ing bullshit. and the whole like that Def Jam Rick just comes flying out again, which I love so to see. So good. I don't want to zero in on, on the minutiae of the book too much and, and I want to talk about the album almost immediately, but I have to ask you what it feels like when you're in a situation with someone who you know you have an opportunity to work with like that, mm-hmm. who's going to better your career and help you, who wants to help you. Yes. But you know in your heart that you disagree fundamentally with what they want to do and that you're locking horns at that point?
2: Well, that's a really good question. I think that when I locked horns with uh, Rick and T-Bone, I was simultaneously growing exponentially alongside them, too, in ways that I never would have grown without them. And then also locking horns was part of the growing. I think I was really acutely aware of my youth and defensive of my right to it.
1: That's really well played.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm not defensive of my youth or my right to it. I feel like I defended it and I put my flag in the ground. I have my affectations and I have my embarrassing lyrics and my outfits I wish I hadn't worn, but I stand behind those times. And now that I have children, I want them to be defensive of their youth too, like in the same way. At the same time, being older, knowing they were right, those things were affectations, they were temporary. And when you're trying to make something permanent that's gonna live alongside the world long after you're gone and you, you hope, you know, that there isn't really a lot of space for temporary things. And just realizing what a balance all that is. And mm-hmm. that's why the relationships are still so good because they know too. Mm-hmm. But you see somebody like Rick work with Johnny Cash or T-Bone work with somebody like Elton who aren't defensive of their youth either. Mm. And they want to be reimagined. They want these visions. They want to shed any affectation that they've acquired or any skin that they've acquired, you know, in, in prior decades. And they I think they want to know what it is people love about them. And somebody like Rick and I spoke with him about this when I was going into work with with Tanya Tucker is so aware of what makes an artist beloved, not just what makes them great, but what makes them beloved and not just in the music, but in the, the parts of their character that they will, you know, magnify or elevate for, you know, with Johnny Cash as an outlaw, you know, and Elton John's somber flamboyance, you know, from the tumbleweed, uh, mm-hmm. connection era, mm-hmm. these kinds of things are honed in, in on and platformed by guys like, folks like T-Bone and, and, um, Rick and it's brilliant. There's nobody that does it better.
1: And you. And yeah.
2: then youth is refined by them too. But it's a fight when you're young.
1: It's a fight when you're young. And you, know, you couldn't have stepped into a studio with an, you know, an eternal fighter like Tanya Tucker yeah. unless you had come to that realization. Oh yeah. Because you're lost.
2: Yeah. And it's <laughs> crazy to like spend my youth, you know, arguing in the studio or out of the studio with Rick Rubin and then be an adult and call him out of the blue and go, I have I have to do a big thing and have him drop everything to call and like mentor me. You know, it just means that all those that sparring, all that rivalry, all that friction is just art and love at the end of it. They wouldn't have fought with me if they didn't love me.
1: What was that thing that you took from working with Tanya Tucker? And I love that part of the book where you talk about she's not only an outlaw, but she you found her as an outlier. And there's a difference. You know, she was someone who was ultimately being judged on her behavior in, of of the past, the way she chose to live her life, had nothing to do with her ability to tell stories, or that that would actually add to the authenticity of those stories. Right, right, right. You saw that. Yeah. And when you emerged from that, what did you learn about yourself and what was possible?
2: I was ready to go in to the studio with this difficult woman too, from the stories that I had heard. Yeah. You know. And then I got in the studio with her, and I was just struck by the fact that she is the quintessential country and Western outlaw. She's rough around the edges, she's ragged, she's soulful, she's beautiful, she's spiritual. I
1: never understood why that wasn't celebrated more. I never understood why people would, would, you would have the space to become that and then be cast aside because you're that. Isn't that where those stories come from?
2: Oh yeah, she was 100% cast aside um, because she's a woman for her, past addictions and shenanigans and behavior, all that stuff that makes those fellows we all love so famous is the same stuff that made her a a pariah. I just became fixated on just sort of like living in musical defense of Tandy Tucker's legacy. And she deserved it every day. She deserved it more, man. She would come in and she would try so hard. She was so so nervous. I don't want to say insecure because that's a character thing. It was situational, you know? But she was shaking some days she was shaking and she let me in the actual vocal booth with her you know tap a pencil on her leg to show her when the chorus would start and the bridges and we just developed a real trust with each other and um god I have some stories but tell us one we were getting ready up in the barn where Tanya came to stay with me for a night when uh a couple nights when we were working on her music and she moved into my apartment and she put she put a couple of pictures, big pictures of herself up in there. <laughs> that was like how she moves into something. And I left them, man, just pictures of herself.
1: And <laughs> like headshots.
2: Yeah, they're still there. I I'll love that you. she didn't take them. No, 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 she didn't. But there's so many stories. I mean, I would wake up in the morning, and she'd be standing in my kitchen in her boxers just cooking bacon on my stove with a fork. She'd... How does she say good morning? Oh, she'd st- like Sling Blade. You know the movie Sling Blade? <laughs> mm. <laughs> morning, baby. Hope you don't mind some bacon. <laughs> You know, just stinking my house up, you know, with bacon, and I was like, I don't mind the bacon any more than I mind your boxers, Tanya. Just love it.
1: You talk about the continuum, and you talk about the uncertainty of being a part of it, and we all feel that way, and we all want it to go the right way. At least everyone I know, everyone you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you're helping in a, in a, in a great way, and, and I, I'm not trying to humble you here or embarrass you, but there's, there's the strong steps you make they create a positive aura around that continuum. They, 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 they give hope. And I just thought the other day when you had the high woman mm. on stage headlining on our new second show, <laughs> and I was just so happy because I thought, like, timing strikes again.
2: I know, it really did. You're exactly right. God, you're so, uh, your observations are, are just dead on. That was an epic situation of, of uh... Timing and faith, and one of those just not coincidence pause,
1: things. Pause, and I know it's frustrating, but trust me, it will be better when it lands. And now, you and your friends are the <laughs> shit. like, you could headline <laughs> anywhere now. So, you did it.
2: <laughs> we were so nervous. And you know, the funny thing is, like, the highwayman movement, the movement of the band, what we mm. were trying to do, with the conversation that we were trying to get started in an industry that just doesn't want to hear it, to be to be honest with yeah. you. It was started despite itself, and it did move the needle, and it did engage the zeitgeist. And um, I feel like the high, high Woman accomplished and are accomplishing sort of what we set out to accomplish. you just and getting started. The music of the High Woman, it's so good. It's like those choruses are sledgehammer choruses, you know? And it was crazy because I had played Penultimate on that set. I had just played. I worked really freaking hard, Zane. I sang Rocket Man. I sang Woodstock. I had an electric guitar. I was like jumping off the drum riser and whipping my head around. I was doing anything I could to like be a presence for that audience. And they were great. Like They they really gave it to us or whatever. But then the High Woman came out and smashed my set. It was like those songs... (laughs) And that wall of women—it was like just wall of it's women. That's what it
1: was designed to do.
2: Grown ass women just belting out these choruses. I was like, oh my gosh, the highwomen are pretty freaking
1: good. I just loved it because when it was when you built it, and you and your friends presented it, and the music's so good, you're like, catch. Can catch up. Like <laughs> this is amazing. And then when it landed the way it did at yeah. that show, and everyone's like, "Holy shit!" The new headline is arrived. I was like, "That's how you do it." Yeah, that's how you do it. You would
2: not have known how nervous we were. None of us slept. We were up all night relearning those songs. But yeah. I mean, it's very. It was intuitive, and it was really special. I'll never forget it. I hope we get another shot like that again.
1: I you will. That's what I'm saying. It's just the start. Surely. Yeah. I mean. Surely now you see the road has, has lengthened and widened. Yeah,
2: greatly. exactly.
1: What are you referring to? Okay, let me, let me have a stab at this. The silent days to which you refer. I wonder, I thought at first it was like a, an observation on what we all had to deal with, but I actually think it, it might have been more that stillness we talked a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Is there some internalization going on here with regards to the, to the feeling of the record? Because again, I feel like there are some lyrics on this album that are very, very soul-bearing and you're searching for real self-awareness.
2: Yeah, it's me sort of saying with the album, this is what I did in these silent days. Mm. And also, what did you do in these silent days? Like, I always want to engage the listener in a question instead of an answer. And that's why it's just in these silent days. You know, it's a question like,
0: Mm. what
2: did you learn? What did you make of yourself? What did you lose? What, you know, what happened to you in this time? It's
0: a
1: bookmark.
2: I want to invite people into reflecting on this time because it's such a pivotal time in human history, in yeah. a real spiritual upheaval for so many people in really positive and really negative complicated ways but mm. I, I I literally think that you can see the emotion that has enveloped the world in this time from outer space it has it has physical properties and so for me, in these silent days, is just an acknowledgement of where we're at. Because albums, to me, are documents of yeah. a period of time. You yeah. know? I documented my Saturn return, and, and I documented leaving my my parents, and I documented big,
1: having trails, my children. You're carving new trails with each record.
2: Yeah, and, and this album is the document of these silent days. But in these silent days, I wrote a book and reflected on my life in an important way.
1: Yeah, but then, you know, is it true that in the book at the end, you said that you started this album at the end? That the first line that came is, the, is one of the lines that finishes the record, that ultimately leaves that question dangling of yeah. who you are when you're not chasing and you're not hunting all the time. Mm-hmm. That hunt is crazy, and and I, I sort of wonder how that set you up for the for the writing of the rest of the record, having that realization at the very start.
2: Yeah, I still haven't answered that question all the way yet, mm-hmm. but I tend to I tend to do that. Like you know, when we wrote, by the way, I forgive you, I didn't. Write that record as an instructional about how to forgive for difficult things. I, I wrote it because I was needed to, mm. you know, and it's the same uh, continuum of me trying to realize who I am when i 'm not in constant mobility all the time, and everybody can relate to that, yeah. especially in in America and um, and I have not answered that question.:
1: Have you continued with the hypnotherapy or anything of that nature to try? Yeah. and identify? Yeah, I did it recently, actually. Yeah, how's it working out?
2: Um, every time it just blows my mind, I did it recently to um, learn how to put my head underwater and open my eyes, which sounds a little more trite than it is, but I have never I never did it. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a control thing or whatever, but yeah. like, you know, I had to make that music video for yeah. Um, yeah. for right, right on, on time and, and Courtney Cox directed it.
1: Was was that scene in the treatment that you read when she described it to you, that you would be underwater opening your eyes?
2: Yeah, and my heart just stopped. I was like, no, that's just like something I can't do. Did you you say
1: that to her? I can't do it. Yeah, and she was
2: like, the more you can't do it, the better it is. Because that's when She's a director, wow. Yeah, she really is. She really is. And so I was like, okay, I respect that. I'm going home and taking adult swim lessons. So I did, didn't work. My oldest daughter gave me a little bit of head underwater training, but it's when I called the hypnotist. Yeah. And, that the, and I told her, I have to put my head underwater, and I don't know how to do it. And even when I can do it, I feel like I'm going to die, and I can't open my eyes, and I am so uncomfortable, I just can't do it. And um, you, she never does what you think she's going to do. Yeah, you know what she said? She said she wasn't going to fix it for me, and that what um, I needed to do was fix how obligated I felt to do it. Mm. and she kind of did some of that regression stuff where she sort of brought me back to like this time in a pool when I was a kid you know with my aunties and you know the old story of you get thrown in because you're you're being a chicken nobody's gonna let you get away with it sort of thing but it was that discarding of my fear and just like ah just fix this about me so I can do it yeah that it was the uh I was the equivalent of throwing myself into a pool again you know and she was like, you're not, you're not going to fix it. You're going to fix how obligated you feel around it. See,
1: that's a fantastic response. But it
2: worked, and then I did it. Yeah. Totally yeah. did it. Now I can do it. Could you do it, do it again? It. I can do it. You can do now it. It's, now it's gone. I can just do it.
1: There's a song on this record that it's hard for me to play favorites, but there's one that I keep coming back to over and over again just because of everything about it. The words, the arrangement, the power of your delivery. Broken Horses, to me, mm. is such an incredible piece of music. Thank you. I mean, Thank I listened you. to that song over and over again, and I'm just stunned by how you got inside that subject matter and owned it. Was that one of those moments when Dave and Shooter, the people around you, said, push yourself? I, I love that there's always there's these moments throughout your career where you know you've got to push yourself. Was that one of those moments?
2: Yeah, and I really kind of knew that on my own this time. That was the joy Beautiful. of coming back to Dave and Shooter on RCA after, by the way, I forgive you, is... By the way, I forgive you, ended on the joke. Yeah. And I kind of felt like I just got somewhere and then it was over. Yeah. And so I knew I was like, all right, no you to learned self, that
1: lesson yourself.
2: you're coming back yeah. here again and you're going to start at the joke and yeah. then go out of the stratosphere. Yeah. You know, dramatically, emotionally, that you know, musically. That
1: note at the end on the final chorus that you reach where your voice completely breaks.
2: Yeah, yeah. I learned that from the Soundgarden stuff.
1: I was going to say, this song reminds yeah. me so much of Soundgarden. And if I may be so bold, even some of the imagery of the lyrics, man, it's a limerick, you know, it's tears of the feeble, hands of the slave, mouths oh. of the slaves, uh, skin of the mothers, mouths of the babes. I Maybe mean, I'm messing that up. Dude. You know, buildings that tower belong to the sky. When it all comes crashing down, don't Visceral. ask me why. Yeah. Right? Let me dance around the apocalypse. Ugh. Let me dance around it, the inevitability of it. Yeah. And paint pictures out of it while it's happening. I always imagine Chris, rest his soul, mm. painting pictures yeah. while it's going. Yeah,
2: well he's certainly painted pictures in our minds forever and ever and ever to the point where it does, it, as an interpreter, something does happen to you when you sing his songs. Yeah, When you sing those lyrics and you stand up there with that band, you don't come back down from that. I, I was never going to go in and make another record after, after um, singing Black Hole Sun and search it With My Good Eye Clothes. Yeah, yeah. The same way again. It was always going to have some Soundgarden in there, and so Broken Horses is probably the most blatant.
1: Well, even the breakdown, the, the way that you take it down dynamically, and you build it back up, and yeah. it's just so loving. It's, so it's such a loving with with my good oh, I It's such a loving
2: But also it's like, and I knew I could go there because lyrically Broken Horses was, the reason I named it after the book is that the book just unlocked so many emotions for me and gave me so much perspective. and, and, and Allowed me to not feel shame about the things I was feeling. They were broken horses. I was realized after some reflection, I had some really righteous anger
0: Hmm.
2: about the way that I've come up in this world as a queer person and the ways that that's affected my marriage and my family and my faith. Hmm. And um, I wanted to scream about it a little bit. And broken horses is just me sort of screaming about it like, hey, I'm really happy, but it wasn't fair. I want to close some doors.
1: Yeah, just because I made it through doesn't mean I'm not yeah. going to kick down some more doors for everybody else. Yeah. That's what that song is. It's just it's just a colossal big f*** you in the best possible way. I
2: know. I don't sing that song. I spit that you song. You do, and at I the end, it. that, that
1: chorus at the <laughs> end is just, I don't know, it's like a physical reaction. Like it makes you want to like punch harder or run faster or do something. It's crazy. You got a bit of that on this record, you know, it's in the Saints and Fools. Yeah. yeah.
2: That's the song buddy to, Bro- to Broken Horses, yeah. Oh no sh-
1: because talk about like a realization that this, through this loyal relationship you have with your faith, that with age and wisdom and experience, you realize that certain parameters within which that faith exists are fundamentally wrong. Yes. That song is Louder just, for
2: the people in the back.
1: And you do it in a way that actually the people who will probably be most resistant will love that song because you write the words that they would sing back.
2: I know. Yeah, it's like, honestly-
1: It's a Trojan horse, that song.
2: It is a Trojan horse. That's what it is. The mechanism by which the Christian faith has been most abusive to humanity, despite what some might think I would say, isn't the total rejection of LGBTQIA people. Which it's also responsible for, or it's embracing of slavery and basically denying every piece of progress that, you know, American humankind has tried to make over the course of the last, you know, you name it, amount of decades. Yeah. It would be its rejection and marginalization of displaced people, refugees, that's exactly asylum it's seekers. It's
1: exactly. And by the way, congratulations, it's exactly what comes across in this song.
2: Yeah, that's how I feel with the work that I've been um, privileged to do with uh, children in conflict and yeah. war child. Yeah. I've learned a lifetime's worth of compassion and empathy for people who become displaced through absolute desperation and then come up against a wall of faith rejection that is so, so hard for me to get my head around. And it felt really good to sing those lyrics. And um, I don't know if it's helping anybody, but it helps me sleep at night.
1: How does that? help you become a better Christian?
2: Sometimes it's easier to learn what not to do than what to do. It's less ambiguous. (laughs) You know, I mean, love is a big word. It's like, is it a feeling? Is it a responsibility? Is it an action? Is it an obligation? You know, Christians are supposed to love. And I think I do that by my understanding of what that word means. But I'll tell you what I don't do. And that is reject displaced people. Reject people who are... Born um, different, look at nuanced ambiguities that queer people have as sinful or evil, and then sort of hurl ancient scripture at them to justify fear. completely excluding them <laughs> from you know fear. all the things that bring us joy.
1: Well, because fear is the enemy of that, yeah, and that's the saddest thing about it. And I think that's one of the things I'm realizing now as I get older and I'm raising up. We're trying to help raise our kids yeah it's just trying to sort of charter a path through fear help them charter a path through fear because it's what you realize with some perspectives everywhere mm-hmm. everywhere you look is the opportunity to be fearful of something scared of something
2: yeah it's true yeah and that's why sometimes i wonder about sort of rejecting some of those templated faith-based words like christian like do we need that it means other things than mm-hmm. we hoped that it would wind up meaning
1: well you know we've I don't know if we ever talked about this, but in your early records, I, I hear this this kind of phrasing and this dynamic um, dedication that I that, that that I love about Jeff Buckley. Mm. And um, I'm a huge Jeff Buckley fan. Mm. And that was how he came up was at Chene and at these cafes. And he would ha- telling people to shut up was never going to work. So you mm-hmm. would have to work out how to go soft and high and create dynamic range to get people's attention. And he said, you just learn how to do it like a seesaw. Yep. That's
2: all it was. It's just like, that was what made him so great is like, I never saw him live because I, I was really too young to be able to get out and see him when he was accessible. Yeah. Yeah. But he was extraordinarily loud, like a horn. And yeah. then he would go to a whisper. Yeah. And sometimes that's the only thing to make drunks shut up. Yeah is like, what happened? Something changed in the environment. Oh, that guy got really quiet all of a sudden.
1: You remind me of him vocally, definitely at times. I don't know if that's a compliment. Very
2: influenced by him and it's a huge compliment, but very, very influenced by him. Yeah. And especially during that time, you're right, that first album, I was just talking about this earlier, I was listening to a lot of guys, Jeff Buckley, Muse, the band Muse. Matt. I had just seen them at Numo's, a club in Seattle with like 400 people. Is that people where you
1: bought your Muse t-shirt from?
2: And That's where I bought the Muse t-shirt from yeah. and, and then obviously Radiohead and yeah. Joshua Tree by U2. Those, those were like really my full influences at the time and then Patsy Cline. Yeah. And, um, I remember I bought that Muse t-shirt at that club and then I wore it so often all the time that it was in all the artwork for the first album that they had to ask the band if this like young girl could like wear their t-shirt and all this album and they wanted to listen to the album they said well let's let us listen and then they came back and they said yes <laughs> and I perfect again I had arrived I had arrived in That's my mind perfect. that and you it. want
1: them to say yes otherwise yeah, it's, it's as good like, as it gonna get you need them to say yes then they really do sit there as like true artists who want to you know yeah. it's a beautiful thing you were choosing really strong vulnerable male vocalists amongst your your tapestry
2: without really knowing it but yeah like that's what I that's what I was um emulating and mimicking were were those guys and yeah they were real bleeding hearts total drama queens
1: yeah and totally I loved it i mean there's that great story of tom york seeing jeff buckley at a small club in london and then going back and that's the first time he had the courage to sing falsetto on pl- fake plastic trees is
2: that true yeah i used to cover fake plastic trees
1: yeah Yeah, he went and sang one version of Fake Plastic Trees I think after seeing Jeff Buckley live, Falsetto, and then I realized I guess he'd reached an emotional place he never reached before and then Legend has it burst into tears.
2: How cool of him to credit that too, Mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Instead of being like, I've had an artistic revelation on my own, to be like, well, actually I went and saw Jeff Buckley and now I'm not afraid to sing like this. I mean, you can get told all day long that you've done a great performance, but when you look out in that crowd and you see tears, first of all, it's so hard not to burst into them yourself. But it's just such an encouragement because you're like, okay, what I'm doing is helping people feel things. Yes. Like this person may have not cried for 10 years. I was wondering Maybe about this that, is the moment.
1: Well, I was wondering about that war between artist and, and, and audience and when you notice these moments happening where they're having such a personal experience and you're trying to focus on giving everyone a universal experience, mm-hmm. whether you can hyper-focus on somebody for a split second.
2: Mm-hmm. I do hyper-focus though. I do. I find a person or a couple of people and I... I focus on them, especially if I'm singing lyrics that feel pertinent to a person I've been catching out of the corner of my eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm singing the joke, and I'll always look for that queer boy in the audience that I picture tugging on his shirt, and I'll just lock eyes with him. And, you know, I don't know what people go through, but I do want to just connect to people, which is, I think, why I even do music
1: you pray that you're going to be a vessel for something like that. I mean, does, does that song seem surreal to you in a way because it happened so fast at a time when you probably didn't even think you needed it on the record? And it's just not it funny how things like that happen. And that yeah. song is a classic, it's a copyright, like a big time copyright.
2: Um, yeah, it does. And it's like, it's that song, you know, and the story's like that too, where I don't know how artists get tired of like singing their their. Pivotal song, you know, because i it's like a countdown to those songs on the set list for me in the show. I just can't wait to get to them. But I know, what, I know what the joke does for my heart when I sing it. So I can only imagine what it would do for somebody that doesn't sing it every night.
1: Yeah. What's been the most surreal moment on stage when you've stared out there and seen somebody that you admire? Was it the Blue performance?
2: Oh, God, that was the most surreal performance. That was by far the most surreal performance. It, it was so scary. I had bit off so much more than I could chew when I decided to do the Blue performance. And then when I found out Joni was coming, yeah. and I thought Joni was much more scary than she was at the time. You know? yeah. I thought that um, she wouldn't like me or wouldn't like what I do and and well, um, you sort of
1: invited yourself into a life which I love yeah you totally kind of invited did. yourself to the wedding you were yeah. like hey there's a spare seat at the table by the randoms by the, <laughs> by the catering can I sit there <laughs> you totally did and it's it's the most <laughs> yeah. it
2: gives How all you, of us you're hope you're so intuitive like you know this without me telling you but yes you're right you're absolutely right yeah
1: it gives us all hope because there are times you all want to do that and then mm-hmm. you're like oh no I didn't do it. it do it
2: do it you know, the worst they can say is no. And then if, you're, if your heart's in the right place, if your spirit is genuine and yeah. you really just want to, to spread joy and, and um, you know, bring happiness, then it's their loss if they don't let you in.
1: We have to stop putting our artists on such a pedestal. We think they're unattainable, they're just human beings. They want to be touched, right?
2: Yeah, it's true.
1: You wrote a beautiful song which pertains to this entire atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you and Me Upon the Rock. You
2: and Me on the Rock, you and yeah. Me on the
1: rock. And um, it, it has a very familiar opening, which, which is in tribute to Joni, I feel. Mm-hmm. And, and
2: Hugely I, I, in tribute to Joni. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I wonder how you sort of landed on that. If she's heard it, if so, what she thinks of it. <laughs>
2: You're going to love this. Okay, so Blue was formative for me. Like well, not many.
1: originally.
2: <laughs> not originally, no. Um,
1: There's no not retell the story entirely. But my
2: obsession made up for lost <laughs> yes, time. Yes. And But what I mean when I say Blue is me singing Blue was formative. Like Once you learn that, you don't unlearn it. It was going to affect the way I wrote everything on this album. It Mm. was gonna affect the way I wrote every song. It was gonna come out of me. And I didn't wanna write a carbon copy of Blue. I'm 40 years old and I, I can't take this turn in my career where I emulate Joni Mitchell. Yeah. But it was gonna happen. And so I knew if I didn't just do one song where I just got it out of my system and just honored the moment, honored what that did for me as an artist, honored what it did for me as a woman, and just go there yeah. unabashedly yeah. that I was gonna do in every goddamn song. Yeah. So basically, we got a dulcimer. We got our dulcimer out from the blue shows that we did Carrie and, and you know uh, All I Want on. And we wrote You and Me on the Rock. And we recorded on guitar, of course. And, and, but I didn't hold the Joniisms back. I just went for them yeah. and embraced it because I knew that if I didn't, I'd, I wouldn't have got it out of my system and it would have been in every song. But once I got it done, I was afraid yeah. for Joni to hear it. Yeah. Because she doesn't really abide derivatives and or pull punches, really. She doesn't take know? compliments
1: very well, right?
2: Well, no, she takes compliments. She just doesn't give them. <laughs> 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 and she certainly doesn't give one if you haven't earned it. Yeah. Know? So um, I got the album, and I was like, I'm not going to sleep until I take this thing up there and play it for her. And yeah. she real And I just tell her this, you know? So I just, I'm like, disclaimer, like, full disclosure, Joni. I went there on one song. I went full Joni tribute. And I hope that, you know, you take it, you see it as a compliment. So before
1: she heard it, what did she say?
2: She's so serene. She was like, huh, okay. Well, you know, just play it. (laughs) And I was like, okay, you know, so I sit down in the living room. We got my glass of Pinot Grigio and Joni's sitting next to me and we're playing the song. And she's leaning forward and kind of grooving, you know. And I've seen her react to stuff she doesn't like. And she doesn't lean forward and groove. And I was kind of feeling less nervous than I was before, but song ends and she just like takes a drink of her wine and looks at me and goes, no, no sounds like a hit. Yeah. <laughs> and that was all, she didn't say a bra, word bra, about like, hey, you totally jonied you know, yourself within an inch of your life to do this song. She didn't say a word she about did. it. She did. That's
1: no. exactly what she said when she said, sounds <laughs> like a hit. Do you think so? Totally. Yeah, yeah, sure. She was like, well, you got it right. It yeah, sounds exactly like me, which right. means it sounds like, as far as I'm concerned. You
2: got it right, as right as you can get it by not being me. Um, That's amazing. No, it, was, it made me so happy. And then, uh, yeah, I've sung it for her a couple times at yeah. her house since then too. And the jams and stuff like that, yeah, she loves it. She plays the bongos and it's just, she knows um, that my affection and admiration for her is, is genuine, but that I'm me.
1: These jams, uh, just the idea that they exist, it's so heartwarming and so amazing and beautiful, and the idea of musicians just coming together and what seems like a, you know, an idea of keeping somebody who has changed everyone's lives company actually falls away, and you realize it's just really a, it's a celebration of music and it, at the highest possible level.
2: Yeah, and you know, it sort of did start that way, where it was like about, you know, Johnny just kind of wanted her instruments to get played in her house because yeah. the house is like it's made for music. It's yeah. so mystical and soulful, and um, you know, she started out a person recovering from a massive life-threatening brain aneurysm, yeah. but she's not that person anymore. Yeah. She's now singing, playing guitar, cracking jokes, entertaining us, noticing when people's wine is empty. Like she's not, she's in, she is the entertainer. She's now hosting.
1: Do you ever get sick of seeing people arrive for the first time and just trip out? No. That just must be one of the great moments.
2: Yeah, you don't get sick of that. It's a, It's amazing.
1: Tell us one tell us a story. Tell us one story. It's not in the book about one of those sessions.
2: The last one was so stunning Okay. because uh, Kathy Bates was there and she had brought, she's my favorite, by the way, and she had brought a guitar to, to play. Wow. But um, Joni took a liking to it and Kathy was like, well, you should have it then. You know, you're Joni Mitchell. You can have my guitar. And she gives it to Joni and it's in Joni's lap. And everybody that knows Joni knows she doesn't play guitar anymore. And that that's not something that she wants to do. And that might not even be something that she'd really welcome, you know. Yeah. And she gets the thing and she goes, does anybody have an amp or a cord, an electric Whoa. guitar? And I was like, amp, cord, <laughs> I was like an emergency. And of course I forget sometimes that she's, she's Joni Mitchell. So I went to take the thing to tune it up. And she sort of gently swatted my hand away. And she goes, no, don't take it. I'm gonna put it in one of my tunings. And we all watched in total disbelief and silence as she tuned it to a classic Joni Mitchell tuning in three seconds. And it was in perfect tune. And just literally started playing it. And um, Marcus Mumford was there with me and the guys from Dawes and mm. Phoebe Bridgers, and they recognized the tuning as um, Coming from the Cold, mm. which is a song from Joni's Ladder catalog. And she got such a kick out of the fact that they recognized it that she sort of played along, along a little bit and she was singing, and the whole room was going, Come in, come in. She was going, Coming from the Cold. And it was transformative I'll never forget it you know I saw the moment Jenny Mitchell picked up a guitar again I saw the moment Jenny Mitchell opened her mouth and sang again and no matter what happens to me in life like those things happened and you can't you can't forget that
1: you could never have ever explained that to your younger self and you would never have truly understood
2: no no that. and then she sang both sides now at 77.
1: It just feels to me like the way the story is unfolding that this idea of of choosing to be creative and artistic in other ways for someone like that when the whole world wants you to continue doing the thing that we want you to do like this we, we get the trade wrong like it was never yeah. supposed to be that trade. Yeah. And we're all just too caught up in our own desire, right? Right. But that you that through this process she is realizing her role in the trade and appreciating it again in a strange way.
2: Yeah, really appreciating it. And we've had some conversations about it, some hearts to heart, heart to hearts about how she feels about what's happening. You know, Blue and the yeah. Kennedy Center and, and, and the Grammy thing. And she's such a, like an open, serene, peaceful spirit. But she's just giddy, like childlike joy yeah. about the recognition. Yeah. Gratitude, just tons of gratitude. You know, she, she jokes about the fact that when Blue came out 50 years ago, nobody got it, and now it's finally a number one, you know. And she yeah. jokes about people not getting it until she's, you know, a woman. And, and, uh, but there's no, there's nothing behind it. It's not visceral. There's no acid there. It's just love.
1: Isn't that part of the reason that you two, you know, you get along so well, I think, is because it seems to me, and this gets back to what we spoke about at the beginning, you have a very different relationship with time than I think a lot of your peers do. Mm. You seem to be at peace with it more than a lot of us who are racing against it. I'm obsessed with time right now. Are you? I need to redefine my relationship with it and stop fighting for more of it or against it Mm -hmm. or wasting it. So much of my, the way I react to the the idea of time is a negative thought, you know, like I'm running out of it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. I just want to flip it. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about today is you seem to have developed a better understanding of what time means to you.
2: Maybe not that I can fully articulate, but you know the song Stay Gentle? Mm -hmm. Like,
1: I'm glad you brought that up.
2: It's about that. It's about how I noticed when, when the kids were born, they were so gentle, yeah. like in their approach, not to things or with their hands, but in their understanding of time
0: yeah.
2: and whether or not it's an enemy. Yeah. And in their understanding of um, what it means to be naive or have someone think that because you don't know the answer to something that, that you're stupid. The innocence, the, the negative connotation that befalls innocence at, at a certain age, falls away again in the latter part of your life. Yeah. And so I've seen this happen with children. And I don't know the age, but there's an age where innocence becomes stupid and then innocence becomes wise again yeah. after this little stint. And I wonder why we have to go through it if we can maybe just stay gentle the whole time. The whole you time. Know? It's hard for me not to race to the end of my life because I have such reverence for my elders and the founders and the waypavers of the things that I love, you know, from faith to music. And I guess I don't see it as an enemy. Like, I've always kind of wanted wrinkles and I, I was sort of excited when I saw my first gray hair. And I think I just always felt, I'm not one of those people that thinks I'm an old soul or that I'm involved in some way, but I always wanted to be older than I was. Maybe I wanted to escape poverty quicker. You know, maybe I wanted to, um, to have a life affirming relationship instead of worrying about being queer or or being, you know, in sin before I could even experience the good parts of that.
1: Those observations um, relate to the idea, I think, from a distance of just looking to feel safe.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the older the safer.
1: Right? Yeah. Less things to consider, less decisions to make. Yeah. Being able to just find a space that by default is your own. Yeah. And then You're less right. anxiety that's gonna just Come at you.
2: Yeah, so I haven't mastered staying in the moment, you know. I'm as afraid of mortality as anybody else, but I do, I do tend to get happier as I get older instead of more concerned about how much time I have left on Earth.
1: And it makes you happy that when you come down here and spend time with your family... Yeah. Catherine, the twins, everyone's children, your sister, your brother, everybody, that, that, that Kim, everybody. Yeah. It makes you yeah. happy that this is where you'll be in... 40 years, 50 years, and it, it replaces any restlessness. It, 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 what does it make you feel like knowing that, as I sort of alluded to at the beginning, no matter where you travel or where you wander now, this will always be here for you?
2: Well, I know now, you know. I always wondered what it would feel like if everything went away, if I suddenly couldn't make money anymore, or if nobody was gonna come and hear me sing. Yeah. And then that happened for a year, and it was an exercise in realizing that, you know, It's going to be okay, you know, because I'm okay. And this place is kind of a snow globe for me, like, but I can be inside of it wherever I go. If I've got the people with me that are here
1: Mm. with
2: me, I can recreate this in Manhattan emotionally if I need to.
1: If you can take this and be safe no matter where you are, Mm because you know it's here, no one can ever take it away from you ever. Like any of it, the music, the performance, none of it. What are you going to do tonight? What does a night here entail? Well,
2: I'm going to fire up the grill mm-hmm. and uh, open up a couple bottles of wine and I think I'm going to cook you a steak.
1: Love it. What are we, <laughs> we going to listen to? What are you listening to? What do you listen to here? Mm.
2: Well, we could listen to the classics. We could go. We could listen to Joni and Elton if mm-hmm. you want. Mm-hmm. Or we could uh, geek out and listen to my compilation of Yeba tracks because we that. were talking about Yeba. So, let's do that. Yeah.
1: Abby, wow. She's somebody that we have to continue to not just love, but guide, I think.
2: Do you think? I've always thought that for years and years now. Mm -hmm. And um, her authenticity, her unlockedness Mm. has been so inspiring to see. Unbelievable. Yeah, there's so many things that you can see that she could have done along the way to clear certain hurdles or whatever. And the fact that she doesn't do them just mystifies me and then she comes out of it with all this artistic integrity and this supernatural ability. Like She might be the best singer like, in existence.
1: <laughs> How are you with that? Do you love putting yourself on the spot like that or do you feel this inclination to somehow just try and reach the note as it's designed?
2: I'm not unlocked and I'm okay with that. You know, yeah. I love entertaining, I love giving people what they want yeah. and I love people and connecting to people. Yeah. My artistry's kind of built for that as a vehicle for that. Yeah. But when, when you see people like uh, Yeba or Joni or Jacob Collier or, or Amy, yeah. you look at them and you're like, doesn't matter who's here. I could not be in this room and they're gonna sing this song the same way because li- they look like they could be hit by a truck right now to continue this performance. And um, that's not what makes me tick, but it makes me Insanely jealous and inspired, and um, I
1: love that you connect jealousy and inspiration, and they should they're be connected. The same thing. They, they should, should be, should the be same connected thing. 100%. God,
2: I love to see it though. God, I love to see it.
1: Yeah, if you don't have that feeling inside of you where it's just like stirring something that's even slightly competitive based on, 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 on inspiration, then yeah. what are we doing it for?
2: I know, and inspiration is like what it comes down to. I want to be like a preacher, like a musical preacher for the rest of my life, and and to try to think as outside of the box as I'm humanly designed to, but I, I don't, I don't have what they have. It's, it's a really special, otherworldly thing.
1: You have a lot. I this, have
2: a lot. I'm really happy about.
1: <laughs> this album is beautiful, start Thank to you. finish. Ten wonderful songs. Some of the best, like wordplay and 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 narration and storytelling I've heard on a record in a long, long time. Really? Yeah. Lovely. Incredible. Thank you. you know, still, still biting my shaking hands and. Mm. You know, images that are just really yeah. boiled into the brain of of what it is to feel a certain way. You you capture them. I'm glad we could come here and capture something that documents it. Yeah. Me and too. I'm thrilled we could we could do it here. It's beautiful. Thanks to everyone for being a part of this and welcome them out here. I love it.
2: Man, thank you. Thanks for coming to the Cedar Grove.
1: The brilliant Brandy Carlisle, the new album in These Silent Days is so great. Go and listen to it along with all her other amazing records and read her book, Broken Horses too. It's i strongly recommended by somebody who's read one book in the last 10 years and that was it. All right, this is the interview series. Please add a rating or a comment. I just get involved, be a part of the community and we'll be back very soon with another brand new conversation. Take care.